When you make your living as a travel writer and a tour guide, you could live practically anywhere in the world. Once Dave Fox visited Vietnam, he knew it was where he wanted to live. Ho Chi Minh City grabbed me right away. It's got this just frenetic energy that's contagious and it's a little intoxicating. In just a bit, we'll hear how the city we used to call Saigon is becoming a magnet for tourists and expats. David Suchet helps us understand the importance of the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther helped change the world. I'm where I am, with or without faith. I live in a world that is affected by the Reformation. The actor, best known on TV as Inspector Poirot, is now narrating a new documentary about the Reformation. David shares with us his own faith story, and also why he finds London to be the best city in the world for an actor to live. And listeners share their European travel plans for the year ahead. It's all coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. 500 years ago, you couldn't interpret what's written in the Bible for yourself without risking your life. But after Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of a German abbey, the Protestant Reformation freed people to define their own faith. And this tumultuous event helped Europe enter the modern age. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, British actor David Suchet gets the Reformation's 500th anniversary started with his own story. Ten years ago, many Americans still wondered if it was safe to travel to Vietnam. But now, they're finding that the war has long ended and Vietnam's young and energetic population is focused on its future. When travel writer Dave Fox and his wife visited Vietnam, they found a neighborhood in Ho Chi Minh City that wasn't just a good base for exploring the country, but also felt like a good place to call home. Dave's here to take your calls now at 877-333-RICK. Dave, welcome. Thanks. You could live anywhere. Of all the places, why would you live in Ho Chi Minh City? Ho Chi Minh City grabbed me right away. It's got this just frenetic energy that's contagious and it's a little intoxicating. The traffic is insane. There's this constant swirl of humanity going on around you. I call it the human kaleidoscope. And I find the people there are they're ambitious without being workaholics. I just really love the, the general vibe of the city. How long have you lived there? I've lived there for a year. I've been visiting a lot for the last eight years. And for four years before I lived in Vietnam, I was living in Singapore, which is quite sterile. It's really the antithesis of, of Vietnam. But I used to escape to Saigon as often as I could. You know, if you go to Germany, everything is orderly and workaholic and clean. Mm -hmm. And then if you go to um, Naples or Lisbon, everything is much more let's live for the moment and a little cluttered and more yep. chaotic. Could you say Singapore and Saigon are that way? Yeah, that's a great comparison. And I think, you know, as travelers, we like to get a little mix of that kind of yeah. thing. So, yeah, absolutely. So now you're, you've been coming back for years and then living there. Now and you're working on a book about a, a certain street in Saigon, mm -hmm. Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, what's, the, what's special about this street? Well, the street, it's called Bui Vien Street, and it's uh -huh. in the middle of the backpacker quarter, kind of the budget traveler's uh -huh. ghetto. And on the surface, when you first arrive, it looks like just this crazy carnival party scene. They have these pop-up bars where people go, that people set up little low-to-the-ground plastic tables and chairs and sell beers for 40 or 50 cents, and you can grab a seat and, and watch all of the chaos. But what I found was beneath the surface, when you start talking to the local residents, when you start talking to the street vendors uh, who are selling a wide array of things, everything from tourist trinkets and souvenirs to... Uh, food to pirated books and DVDs and things like that. And when you get to learn about their lives, you just you discover that there is there's a big story in this neighborhood mm -hmm. that most tourists never see. 
so what, what I did on, on Bouvian Street for these interviews with some of the street vendors, I have a, a good friend named Phuc who translates for me. I speak basic Vietnamese, but I'm learning it slowly, and it's not good enough to do interviews yet. But Phuc and I would just park ourselves at one of these little drink spots, and we would wait for the vendors to come to us, uh. and we would invite them to sit down with us and explain to them that I'm a writer and I just wanted to chat with them for a few minutes, and we'd buy them something to drink or some food or something. And, and that would work? Many of them, would, it did. I mean, so these, these are people who tourists most of the time are kind of pushing away and shrugging off. Mm -hmm. And so when you approach them and say, hey, tell me about your life, tell me about your story, they don't get that opportunity very often. And so a lot of them are happy to tell you what they're doing. So that's what distinguishes a trip, I would imagine, because you got your checklist of famous sites and experiences, but to somehow connect with real people and get beyond the you've got money and they want it, which is really the, the challenge for most of us first world travelers when we go to a, an emerging economy. Let's just talk for a minute about just the big picture, Dave. Um, First of all, is it Ho Chi Minh City or is it Saigon? The official name is Ho Chi Minh City. It was changed after the war. And the name Saigon, there was a time when you could get in trouble for calling it that. But people have really relaxed. And so today, people use them interchangeably. But sure. Ho Chi Minh would be much but, more charged with this. We won the war and our guy is going to be the name of your city. Yeah. So Ho Chi Minh is a cult figure there. And he, you know, he is, he is almost revered. And, you know, one thing that a lot of Americans don't understand about Ho Chi Minh is that he he led the communists, but he wasn't so much pro-communist as he was Vietnam nationalist. Vietnam right. had been under the thumb of the Americans and the French before yeah. that and, and the Chinese, and he just wanted an independent nation. He aligned with communism because he saw, he saw that as a way out. But there are many Vietnamese, I have many friends who are very anti-communist who still mm -hmm. uh, speak very positively of Ho Chi Minh. Mm -hmm. Today when you are in Saigon, how big of a city is it? Uh, it's got about 8 million people. So Eight million. City. Yeah. It's, Whoa. Yeah. Is there a historic core and the rest of it is just uh, crazy modern sprawl? It's spread out. I mean, there is a lot of sprawl there. I love the architecture there. You do see some old sort of French, you know, this French colonial architecture and that kind of thing. In terms of old historic buildings, yeah, there are some. One unfortunate thing is a lot of buildings are being knocked down and replaced with more modern buildings. Oh, really? And that's something you see all over Asia. Uh, but there is there's a sort of a tourist center neighborhood where you will find some historic sites. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of sterilized, though. I wouldn't call it sterilized. It's not a sterilized city. No, you know, it's it's, probably it's a gritty sort of gritty. a place. But I think one thing that's important to keep in mind when you go there is that to me, it's got a few tourist attractions. But to me, the biggest attraction is the streets and just yeah. walk, walk until your feet can't take it anymore. Let's say I got a week in Vietnam and I want to have three days in a great city and then I really want to get out in the countryside, so I want to do Hanoi or Saigon. How would you compare Hanoi and Saigon? They're quite different in nature. Uh, Saigon is, like I said, it's just this urban sprawl everywhere, but I love the, the crazy energy to it. Hanoi is more divided into neighborhoods and there are parts of Hanoi that are quite quiet and peaceful, the old French Quarter. Mm -hmm. uh, when you go into the old town, uh, that's the most insane traffic I've ever seen anywhere in my life. And so, and Hanoi also, one thing I like about Hanoi is it's got several lakes, which give it a more calming uh, kind of a quality But you to chose it. Saigon. I chose Saigon. I like the energy in Saigon yeah. a lot. Yeah. Dave Fox is my guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Boy, the world is Dave's oyster, and he's sharing with us why he chose to settle in Ho Chi Minh City. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Barbara's calling in from Kankakee in Illinois. Barbara, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Dave. Very interesting program. I'm planning a trip to Vietnam in the near future, going to Ho Chi Minh City, 
Chan Mei, Hanoi. I was wondering if there are any recommendations for foods or drinks that I should not miss while there. Yeah, absolutely. The the food in Vietnam is is absolutely wonderful. The most quintessential Vietnamese food, and we see it a lot in restaurants here in the States now, is, is what's called pho, which is how you actually pronounce that, spelled P-H-O. And it's a soup. It's a rice noodle soup, uh, usually with either chicken or beef or sometimes duck or some something else in it. Um, but that is one of my favorite things. So you look for a, a, a good pho restaurant would be one that's very popular with a lot of people? Look for a place with a lot of people in it, but not necessarily a place that looks fancy. To me, the most exciting places, sometimes it can be a street side stand. It'll be literally just a, a little stall out on the sidewalk with a few plastic tables around ah. it. And street food in general, you know, and I know all the guidebooks and your doctors always say, you know, don't ever eat street food. I was terrified of street food when I first moved there. I will say now that I eat it all the time. And, yeah, you're taking a little bit of a risk. You should talk to your doctor before you go and, and, you know, just know what precautions you need to take if you do get sick. But one thing to keep in mind, you'll see meat sold out on the streets and just out on tables. It's not refrigerated and it's, you know, 90 degrees Fahrenheit outside. And you're going, that can't be hygienic. But this is stuff that is so fresh. Turnover was how I stayed safe in India. It's a yeah. fast turnover place. That's the key. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Have you and your wife or your wife ever been sick because of the food? You've lived there for a year. Yeah, I mean, we've had some minor things, as one mm-hmm. does, but I've never, I've never been deathly ill there. All right, Barbara, thanks for your call. Good luck on your Thank trip. You Let us know much. how it goes. Thanks, Barbara. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. It's Travel with Rick Steves. An American travel writing coach and tour guide Dave Fox is telling us about his new home city of Saigon, or Ho Chi Minh City and how it makes an ideal base for exploring Vietnam. Dave's website is globejotting.com. Dana's calling in from Wilmington, North Carolina. Hi, Dana. Hi. I actually lived in Hanoi for a long time. I'm a writer, and I was interested in this conversation because Dave was talking about living in Saigon, and when I first started living there in the 1990s, early 90s, there was such a difference between the north and the south, and there was a lot of antipathy between the two places. And I'm interested to hear what Dave's saying about how he still sees the difference, but it seems to be maybe a little bit less. What are you seeing now? It's interesting. I think you're right, Dana. There is a lot less animosity today than there used to be. One thing I find interesting, though, is that I have a lot of friends in Saigon who warn me, oh, you've got to be careful when you go to the north. They're, they're, they're not honest people, and they're, they, they're not going to like you. And then I go I to Hanoi. I had the opposite warnings. But yeah, so, <laughs> I had people in the north say that to me about people in Saigon. Yeah, and then when you went to Saigon, I'm guessing you found that that wasn't true. Is that, is that right? Exactly. People are people. Yeah, exactly. And I I find the people in Hanoi just as friendly as the people in Saigon. And I think that there is this lingering, you know, dislike or distrust from the war in some ways between the North and the South. But I think that as a traveler, I personally have not seen any difference. Thanks, Dana, for your call. Thank you. Take care. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Dave Fox about living in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City. Hey, Dave, if you could give me two images of Ho Chi Minh City that, that just sum up the city, one crazy and intense and the other more intimate and friendly. What would those images be? When you when you first arrive, the first thing you will notice is the traffic and just everything's always moving and people are up 24 hours a day. You all, It's a city that's always awake. And so it's, it's crazy, it's chaotic, it's noisy, and it's fun if you approach it with that attitude that, hey, this is fun. Just don't let it overwhelm you. And it's great. But to find these more friendly Uh, quiet, more intimate neighborhoods, what I encourage people to do, and if you're not super familiar with the city, maybe do it in daytime just to be a little safe, but walk a little bit away from the tourist areas. You only need to go a few blocks and you start to find these little 
outdoor cafes and it's all local people. They'll be staring at you wondering what you're doing there. One of the things I always say as a travel writer is when people are staring and wondering why I'm there, I've gotten to the right place. So just walk a little bit away and, and yeah, you can find these just cozy neighborhoods and people are quite friendly whether they speak English or not. So you're sit, you sit sitting down, down on little tiny kindergarten style chairs? Yeah, these little plastic chairs and tables, they've got them all over and uh, it's fun. You just and then you have a drink. With, what, yeah. would you, what, what kind of drink? They have these amazing fruit juices. It's all fresh squeezed fruit juices. Mm. Vietnamese iced coffee is incredibly potent. It's hyper-caffeinated, but it is so delicious the way they make their iced coffee there, and I love it. So 90 yeah. degrees, sitting on a kindergarten chair, watching a, love, a river of amazing life go by. Probably yeah. just stokes your travel writer spirit. It does. It does. I never get bored just sitting on the street and watching life go by there. Fantastic. Thanks so much, and uh, you got me dreaming about Ho Chi Minh City. What's one keyword I need to know so I can uh, connect with the people? The phrase that everybody loves to teach foreigners when you go to these little pop-up beer joints out on the street is Mop Hai Ba Yo, which means one, two, three, cheers. Mop Hai Ba Yo? Yeah, you got it. I got it. Mop Hai Hai Yo. Dave Fox is leading a travel writing tour of Vietnam with Wildland Adventures in March. You can find links to our guests with each week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll open the phones in just a bit to hear about your travel plans for the year ahead. But first, actor David Suchet helps us understand the importance of the Protestant Reformation during this, its 500th anniversary. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Ever since he was invited to join the Royal Shakespeare Company in 1973, David Suchet has made a name for himself on stage, movies, and TV, especially as Agatha Christie's Poirot for 25 years. Recently, he narrated the entire new international version of the Bible, as well as a documentary about the Protestant Reformation. It explains how an obscure German monk started a revolution that reshaped the medieval world and continues to resonate to this day. It's called This Changed Everything, and it's airing this year on public TV. David, thanks for being with us. That's a pleasure. Now, David, you were born and bred a Londoner and famously love your city. What's so great about London? Well, I'll be slightly controversial because I believe it's the cultural capital city of the world. And I've lived here for many decades now. And, well, I've traveled all over the world and played Broadway and had that wonderful privilege of, you know, visiting and, and working in many, many cities. I just think London... I suppose because I grew up in the 60s and there was this great Beatlemania and everything else, in my life, London has always been like the center of the world in regards capital cities. It's Mm -hmm. always been the center of the fashion, it's been the center of the pop industry. And for me, as an actor, I feel so very fortunate that I was brought up as an actor and worked as an actor in London and on the stage and in a city where I'm able to do as much theatre as is offered or television that I'm offered or movie that I'm offered or radio drama that I'm offered, all within the same city. I don't have to (laughs) travel miles to do anything, which is wonderful. So as an actor, you chose the right place to call home. Well, (laughs) I feel glad that I was chosen (laughs) to be here. (laughs) It's not controversial to to say London would be the greatest theatre city in the world. Oh, well, that's all right. I'm very biased. (laughs) You know, we write guidebooks to London and love to go to London here, and uh, people have their sights on the theater. 
we know to see the different, you know, sightseeing attractions and so on, but you're an insider in the theater scene. What are a couple of general recommendations you'd have for an American traveler going to London who wants to appreciate the theater there? In London, I would say the curious incident of the dog would be lovely. I would say, well, the RSC is playing at Stratford, of course, but Mm -hmm. um, the the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, The Tempest, is being played. There's a wonderful play that's just received five star Mm -hmm. uh, called Our House at the Garrick Theatre. Does the Royal Shakespeare Company split its time between London and Stratford, or, or are they always in Stratford? They split their times, and King Lear is at the Barbican in London, whereas The Tempest is in Stratford. So moment. that would be the, probably the primary thing if you want to appreciate classic theaters to see, experience the Royal Shakespeare Company. And also you've got, um, at the National Theatre, you've got Amadeus, which uh, is a play very dear to me, but it's a mm. very interesting production going on at the National Theatre with a live orchestra, which is wonderful, a very, very unique production. And Mm. we were there the other night, and having played Salieri, I can tell you this is a production well worth seeing. I'm going to put that on my list. You've done a lot of projects about Christian history, and you've done The Footsteps of Paul, The Footsteps of Peter. You've got this exciting documentary on, on just the great story of the Reformation called This Changed Everything, and that'll be airing on public broadcasting here in the United States in the coming year. You were raised a secular Jew without religion, I understand, and then big change happened in 1986. Can you tell us a bit about that? You're right. I was raised a secular Jew. We were sent to Church of England schools. My father was Jewish. His family was were Jewish. My background is Lithuanian Jewish, but my father became a surgeon and, and gave it all up and married my mother, who was Church of England. So that was the end of the Jewish line, because as you know, or the listeners will certainly know, in the Jewish faith, the religion is passed down through the mother on the basis that you always know who your mother was, but you're never sure who your father was. Mm. So I was brought up as a nominal Christian being at those schools, but I was never formally baptized, confirmed or christened. And then I suppose as I was growing up, I was always interested in searching for something. And I used to read Castaneda and I dabbled in Buddhism because I really believed that life did not just consist of what we can see. I felt there was Mm -hmm. always something more to life. And I was looking for some sort of world view. And I think that's very important for anybody is to have a world view rather than to just um, float around day to day without actually seeing how they should see the world. So uh, 1986 came and I was making a film in Seattle, Bigfoot and the Hendersons, and I started thinking about my late grandfather, who I had always imagined to be my spiritual guide, and I thought, that's very strange I should think about that, because in in fact I don't actually believe in life after death. So suddenly there was a paradox for me, and that led me to reading or picking up and getting the New Testament. And I didn't want to read about Jesus Christ at that time because I I did Jesus Christ for religious education and exams. But I knew that there was a man called Paul who wrote letters, and I knew that that was true, and I knew that those letters existed. And I was always interested in Rome as uh, the history of the Roman Empire. So I decided... Well, I would read Paul's letter to the Romans, and as I do with all ancient texts and ancient letters, I imagine that that letter was written to me personally. 
to make it fresh. And by the time I'd come to the end of Romans, I had found the worldview that I had been looking for in terms of how to live, how to treat people, how to look at your neighbors, how to be kind, how to receive, how to be hospitable, how to love. It just gave me the most wonderful view of the world. And it mm -hmm. basically comes down to the Christian religion, comes down to two things, which is love God and love your neighbor. And mm -hmm. it's as hard as that, really. And because I'd found that, I was forced, if you like, to find a, where did they get this from? Where did Paul get all this from? And of course, it was from this man, Jesus Christ. So I had to go back into the Gospels. And then the more I read the Gospels, and then the rest of the whole of the New Testament, I decided that this was going to be not only my faith, a Christian, but my worldview for the rest of my life. Yes, and I, uh, and I haven't changed since. And it's been a very difficult journey. It's never an easy thing to follow any form of philosophy or religious worldview. It's, you always find yourself swimming against the tide <laughs> in so many areas. Yes. In living in a materialistic world, it's been a long journey since 1986, but I wouldn't change it for the world. For 25 years, our guest David Suchet portrayed Agatha Christie's Belgian detective Poirot on ITV in Britain and on PBS in the U.S. He's joining us on Travel with Rick Steves from BBC Studios in London. Recently, David narrated a documentary about the Protestant Reformation called This Changed Everything. It's showing on a number of public television stations this year for the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. You say you're not an evangelist and you wouldn't try to convert anybody directly, but you're driven in, in your work by your faith. And watching your Footsteps of Paul and Footsteps of Peter documentaries and the Luther special, it was clear to me that this was an inspiration for you. Um, how are you driven in your work by your faith? It's a very good question. I, it's a very hard question to answer. Mm -hmm. I think it's... I wouldn't actually say it's being driven. My work is driven by my faith. My choices are driven by my faith now. My attitude when I'm working is driven by my faith. My relationships with people when I'm working with the director and the cast and the crew and everybody around, I just try and be who I am mm -hmm. as a Christian without uh, pushing it on anybody. Mm -hmm. And when I did St. Peter and Paul, my passion there was really as an actor to find out, which is what I do, I find out about their character. I knew Peter lived. There was no doubt about that. I knew that Paul lived. There was no doubt about that. Paul wrote a letter that converted me to Christianity. So I was passionate to find out about this man. And as far as Peter was concerned, I thought, well, having done Paul, you can't really do Paul without Peter. And uh, the famous nursery rhyme, Peter and Paul sat on the wall. Do you remember Peter, Paul, Peter, Paul? You can't have Peter without Paul. You can't have <laughs> yeah. Paul without Peter. So they were a sort of pair. And my next, what my next passion is going to be is, if I can get it off the ground, is going to be in the footsteps of the man himself, in the footsteps of the master, because that's where they got it from. Right. And I'd love to do do a documentary on the character mm -hmm. of Jesus. So I was really driven by character more than anything else. Now, you've recently narrated a documentary on Luther, the Reformation. As I mentioned, it's called This Changed Everything. I just watched it. It's an amazing story. 
Why did you take on this project, and uh, what was that like for you? I took on the project because the Reformation for me is, and has always been, a fascination. And yet, you know, you talk to people today about the Reformation, and they don't really know much about it, to be honest. They know there was a man called Luther. They know that this man put up a lot of theses on the castle church in Wittenberg, all about indulgences. Not everybody knows what indulgences are. And they know as a result of that, Protestants came to be and sort of separated from the Catholic Church. But generally speaking, the public don't really know the details of the Reformation. And without knowledge of the Reformation, Mm -hmm. you have no view on what was before it or indeed appreciation of what came after it. And that, I think, is important because the Reformation, the title of the documentary is This Changed Everything. Well, it really did. It changed the Western world. And all of us today, each and every one of us, alive in the universe, in Western Europe, or anywhere where there's a Protestant faith, has got to say, I'm where I am, with or without faith, I live in a world that is affected by the Reformation. Give me a a concrete example, because I've produced a a one-hour show on Luther and the Reformation for public television also, and it's been an exciting learning experience for me. Some people thought I was kind of naive or romantic to say that this, along with humanism and the Renaissance, helped usher Western civilization out of the Middle Ages and into the modern age. How did it change everything, in your estimate, from the work you did on the on the Luther special? I think it gave me an appreciation of the biggest selling and most unread book in the world, and that's called the Bible. And as a result of the Reformation, the Bible became printed in the vernacular. You can read it, for example, thanks to Tyndale and other people, we now can read the Bible in English. You can read the Bible in Swedish. You can read the Bible in German. You can read the Bible in any language you want to read it. And we take it for granted today. But that caused not only an uproar, but cost the lives of those that tried to get it done. And indeed, for Tyndale, who did get it done, wrote the New Testament in the English vernacular, he was um, killed for his efforts. And this Bible, this book, once written in the vernacular, allowed men and women to see exactly what was there and what Luther found was that in the Catholic faith, in the Catholic version of Christianity of his time, which was only Catholic, he realized that the church was teaching doctrine and dogma that actually was not in the Bible. Now, I'm not going to go into all the different Mm -hmm. dogmas and doctrines of the Catholic church, the Protestant church, and everything else, but that, he thought, was so wrong and that the Catholic church could forgive sins by people paying the money to the church, and that was called indulgences. And he wrote his 95 theses or articles against the indulgences, in other words, paying the church to forgive your sins. And he nailed that on the door of Wittenberg Castle Church. And that really was the beginning of the Reformation in Europe. And it is the Reformation which is reforming. And that's what happened. It reformed the church. So the crux of this, it seems like, is somebody had the the ability 
and the wherewithal and the connections and the printing press or the whatever to be able to translate the Bible from Latin into the local language so regular people could read it. And the existing church, the medieval church, was threatened by that because there's a lot of stuff that was part of their doctrine that was just not in the Bible. Is that sort not of not in the Bible and and only served the church, which was right. guilty of. And then Hoos tried it, and he was burned. Luther managed because of a lot of complicated political issues of the day. But this was for me to see the context back 500 years ago. I mean, today it doesn't seem like that earth-shaking of a thing. But if you take it back 500 years, it is just amazing. And what a lot of people don't know is that there was more blood shed as a result of mm-hmm. the Reformation. There was such cruelty. There was such... Uh, the people mm. that died because they were trying to get to the truth mm-hmm. of what the Bible said. And, and these people stood up against the greatest power outside of the... Well, I suppose it was almost political as well, which is the church. We're both into words and, and great literature and so on, and it seems like there was a sort of a secondary advantage of all of this work on translating the Bible that really established the modern language, written languages of great countries, Luther and the Luther Bible, King James and the King James Bible, Hus in Czech with the Czech language. So it really was part of the evolution of local civilizations as well as a new way to better understand the sacred scriptures. Yeah, and I believe the Reformation would never have taken place without the printing press. Right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with David Suchet, and uh, he's got so many interesting projects. Uh, a highly regarded actor in, in London, and uh, we've enjoyed him as Poirot over the years. His new project is This Changed Everything about the, the Reformation as we have celebrate 500 years since uh, 1517. Hey, David, uh, last thought. You've done so many thoughtful things in regards to Christian history and your Christian faith. Have you found any places in Britain where you live that have been uh, spiritually nourishing to your faith as travels were in the Holy Land for you? I'm just trying to think. Yes, actually. Whenever I go there, I can't help but feel spiritual. And it's got uh, nothing to do with monasteries or churches or, or anything else. It's an island in the Outer Hebrides, just off Scotland, and it's called the Isle of Harris. 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 I thought you were H-A-R-R-I- going to say Iona, but it's Harris. It's Harris. No, I found Iona, uh-huh. strangly enough, too commercialized <laughs> it is now com- for me. The new Iona. Well, yes, maybe, don't uh, <laughs> let nobody flock there. because No, no, no we won't tell anybody. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I found Iona wonderful. I'm not saying anything yeah. against no. Iona. It was, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, but, but it I, is the tourist go-to I, island. I stayed in a very noisy hotel. There were right. very rowdy people there, and I, I didn't feel spiritual yeah. there. But it was all around me, obviously, there, sure. because it's famous. Yeah. But Harris, Harris itself is the most extraordinary landscape it has an area of landscape that they say is exactly the same stone structure and mineral structure as is on the moon. It huh. is wild. It is, oh, I don't know, but every time I go there with, with my wife, we, we stand on that soil and just feel that it's so spiritual. Harris, Wonderful. in the Outer Hebrides in Scotland. David Suchet. You've entertained people for decades, and you've done it with heart and with soul. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a delight talking with you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you.
David Suchet will be back with us on Travel with Rick Steves' Easter weekend to tell us about his adventures filming a documentary called In the Footsteps of St. Paul. It took him to Israel, Turkey, Greece, and Rome. Up next, we open the phones at 877-333-7425. Let's hear what kinds of travel plans you're making for the year ahead. Where are you thinking of traveling in the year ahead? And what ideas or questions do you have as you finalize your itinerary? Let's talk about it. Our number at Travel with Rick Steves is 877-333-7425. And by email, you can contact us at radio at ricksteves.com. Pamela's calling in from Davie in Florida. Pamela, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, my husband and I are planning a trip to um, Italy. We're going to try and cover as many cities as possible because of all of the shows that I've listened to, you've made me want to go to everywhere possible in Italy. <laughs> we are planning to spend three or four days in Florence, and from there we wanted to see if you think it would be possible to take a day trip to Venice and then take a day trip to Cinque Terre. I know it's only a few days, but we're trying to do as much as possible and just wondering what your advice would be, like whether we should see one over the other or if you think we could see all of three cities in the three to four days. Choose if, two. If you think that's possible, <laughs> no. or you could do it, but you could do it, but you'd be exhausted, and, and your trip would be a frazzled kind of mess. I, I, you could do it. Yeah, Venice is three hours by train from Florence, and the Cinque Terre is about three hours by train. Also, you know, if if you really wanted to, you could do it. You you could spend all those nights in Florence, and you could get an early start and uh, have eight hours in Venice and eight hours in the Cinque Terre. Certainly doable. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend one over the other, like a, it's, a Cinque Terre versus Venice? I would say assume you're going to return. I think it's important for Americans not to try to see it all, and uh, it kind of depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for great museums and, and you know, the awe-inspiring kind of culture, you'd want to go to Venice, and I would think a, a couple of days in Venice would be really nice, and a couple of days in Florence. But that's a tough call. You, just, <laughs> you don't have enough time. If there's any way you could get another day, that would be real nice, because... I could see if you had one more day, you know, making Venice a side trip from Florence. You can do a lot in Venice in a day. Anybody that goes there by a cruise ship might be used to that. And then you can go over to the Cinque Terre and spend one night in the Cinque Terre. It's just so magical at night and during the middle of the day. See, the problem is you're going to be in the same bag as all the cruise travelers and all the big bus tourists. You're going to be coming Mm -hmm. in mid-morning. You're going to be there when it's really crowded. And you're going to be going out when everybody is rush hour going out with you. And you're going to be vacating just when the things get romantic and peaceful and magical. I would much rather have the late afternoon and evening and early morning in in Venice or the Cinque Terre than the middle of the day. The Cinque Terre especially is being really inundated by cruise groups these days. And it's making the trails almost dangerous. There's so many people there. And it, it just becomes horrible for the middle six hours of the day. And I would remember remind you, when you go to Florence, there's a lot of great sites that everybody wants to see, and it really behooves you to make a reservation in advance when that's possible. Your guidebook will tell you which sites are, you can make reservations in, okay? Have a great time. Thank you so much. Thanks for your Thank call. you for taking my call. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Clara's on the line from Louisville in Kentucky. Hi, Clara. Hello. 
Well, I'm very excited because later this year I will be sailing through the Arctic Circle with fellow artists and scientists. And we decided, my family and I, since a third of us will already be across the pond, that we would save up the money and plan a trip. And since I have to route my trip to meet the sailboat through Oslo, we decided on Scandinavia. So now we're trying to figure out what one does in Scandinavia. My son will turn 10 while we're over there, so we're going to hit up Legoland for him and explore the land of the Vikings. But one thing that we're a little concerned about is we're going to be there later in the fall. And so I'm wondering what kinds of things we can look to be open, because some things look like they close maybe about the time we're going to be heading in yeah. for our trip. What month are you going to be there? Um, either late September or late October. Oh, my goodness. See, that's really late for Scandinavia. And uh, yeah. it doesn't draw the curtains on your whole travel adventure, but it lowers them a little bit because by that time, there's no crowds anywhere. And in much of Europe, that's a blessing. But in Scandinavia, I'd, frankly, I'd rather have the crowds and the long days. And uh, I like to go peak season, July and August. So you're going to be going late. That means be sure to get an early start because it's, things will shut down early. And a lot of the outdoor things will be pretty quiet and you'll want to dress, be able to dress really warm. One great thing about Scandinavia is when you go to the cultural sites, the building may seem kind of empty and and hard to get excited about, but your admission ticket includes a guided tour. And people don't realize that a lot of times. So especially if you're traveling with a child, you you said you're going with your son, right? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think that when you have a local guide at these sites, it makes all the difference in the world. Your son is going to be probably excited about seeing Legoland. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. There's the Hans Christian Andersen stuff that you can see all over Denmark, which is popular. And when you go to Stockholm, there's a wonderful warship that was uh, sunk on its maiden voyage. That's the Vasa, which you can check yeah, out. Yeah, about that. And you've got Viking ships. Uh, if your son is interested in that, you might want to do a little studying in advance. And then there are the two best Viking ships anywhere in Scandinavia are Roskilde, outside of uh, Copenhagen in Denmark, and just across the bay in Oslo at Bigdoy. You've got the Viking ship museum there. Uh, one thing I like in Scandinavia, and you'll find it in every Scandinavian capital, is an open-air folk museum. And honestly, yeah. I would spend a whole day at each open-air folk museum, especially if I was traveling with a child. And there you have a chance to almost kind of like walk through the entire country but never leave the park. And you can visit traditional cabins and schoolhouses and churches and shops and bakeries and sightsee and talk and eat and, and artisan your way through the traditional culture in a very vivid and interactive way. That sounds great. Do you think that we could get by with just public transit? Because that's one thing we're debating as we look at getting more specific about our plans is do we rent a car or can we stick to public transit? And also, I'm an avid cyclist. I would love to do something that gets them on a bike, too, and oh, maybe yeah. gets us out of the city or, or just, you know, inside of the Scandinavian life. You don't need to get out of the city to enjoy biking in Scandinavia because the cities really are enthusiastic about biking. When I'm in Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark, I don't want a taxi. I don't want a car. I borrow or rent a bike from my hotel. Most hotels have loaner bikes or they rent them really cheap to their guests. And then you just park the bike out back and you hop on your bike and you get anywhere in town faster than a taxi could take you. All over Europe now, they've got these loaner systems where bikes are almost free. They just, you buy a card and you can just unplug them and drive them around. And generally they're designed for for locals and not really convenient for tourists. But in Stockholm, that's the one place where the bike system, the loaner bike system is great. And I just thoroughly enjoyed my biking around Stockholm. So that's something you might want to keep in mind. As far as your transportation, 
in Scandinavia, you're generally going from city to city to city, and public transportation and trains and so on are excellent. It's relatively inexpensive to fly, and it is just more expensive to drive. And the last thing you want is a car in a big city in Scandinavia. If you have a car in Bergen or Stockholm or Oslo or Copenhagen, it's going to be expensive to park. It's even expensive to drive into the town because they have these congestion fees where if you drive into the center, uh, you have to pay an extra fee because they Uh want to keep the traffic out. I would shy away from having a car in Scandinavia unless I was going to scour the countryside. Which I think it may be a little late in the season for us to do because a lot of roads are closed I've been reading. That's a very good point. In fact, if you're wondering about the downside of going in the fall, as I mentioned, uh, the downside is less in the big cities and it's greater in the countryside and the small towns. Good to know. That's very All helpful. Right. Well, Clara, have a great time, and good for Thank you for you. taking your uh, your son on his birthday over there, too. Great. Thank you very much. Bye now. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and our phone number is 877-333-7425. Email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Mark in Lenexa, Kansas, is thinking about visiting southern Italy. Mark writes, We've traveled to Italy twice now, focusing on the Amalfi Coast and the north, and we love Italy. We're now considering Rome and South. Most travel information is focused on the North. How is travel in the South different? How would you suggest travelers adjust their expectations and their plans? Well, Mark, most people go to the center in the north of Italy because that's where all the money was in the old days. So you got the great palaces, you got the great museums and galleries and and the, the wonderful town centers. When you go to the South, you're finding a sort of a hard scrabble culture that has been run down and dominated by conqueror after conqueror. On the other hand, you'll find a rustic sort of warmth and welcome and hospitality. You'll find prices half of what you'd expect in Venice or Florence or Rome. And you'll find an opportunity to get into the uh, sort of mom and pop, small town culture quite nicely in the little villages in the south. Frankly, I like the center in the north of Italy better than the south of Italy. But people who like Italy find that the Italian culture gets a little more vivid and a little more rustic as you go further south. Damon's on the line in Scottsdale, Arizona. Damon, thanks for your call. Yeah, during the summer, we're going to uh, be on a cruise in the Baltic Sea. And one of our parts of call is Helsinki. And looking at the schedule, we only have maybe five hours in Helsinki, and we plan to take public transport right off the ship. What would you recommend as the one must-see or must-do in that city? Well, the one must-do, Damon, when you're coming into Helsinki on a cruise ship is to take the city tour. And it's a beautiful two-hour, quickie trip around town. And given the fact that a lot of the great sites of Helsinki are are spread around where you wouldn't walk to them conveniently, and given the interesting history and your limited time, it's just nice to sit in the comfort of a bus and have a local guide tell you the whole story in English. The uh, cruise ships, there's two or three cruise docks in the city. You'll be met by a local bus, and I would just take that. An option would be the hop-on, hop-off bus service, which you probably know that system. You you just buy a, a pass for a day, and then every half an hour, every 20 minutes, a bus comes along, and they all do the same circular route, stopping at the top 12 or 15 stops in town. And one of those stops would be the cruise port. So you can circulate through the town, hop on and hop off where you like, lacing together all the sites that you want to see with your short day trip from the cruise ship. One thing that you just got to do is right downtown, uh, close to the cruise port, and that's enjoy the market. Uh, Rather than go to a fancy restaurant, I just like eating in the market. They've always got great food stalls in the market, and that would include some beautiful seafood and some beautiful salmon. Uh, And if you're uh, a good student of the culture in Helsinki, you've got the National Gallery nearby for all the local painting and the local masters. 
And you've got the National Museum that's just more of a history and ethnographic museum, and all of that is, is pretty close to the center. So I wouldn't say one thing. I would say do the tour for the two-hour orientation and then take a couple hours to do some other sightseeing before you head back to the ship. Sounds like the hop-on, hop-off bus is an efficient way to go ahead and do that tour of Helsinki. And it provides not only the transportation very conveniently, lacing together all the major sites, but it also provides a guided tour while you're on the bus. Sometimes they're tape-recorded, sometimes they're live guide, uh, but I find they're always very helpful, and they fill every minute with information and beautiful things to see. If it happens to be sunny, you get up on top, it's an open-top bus, and you got beautiful photography, and you can munch a sandwich and uh, do your sightseeing, and it's just a beautiful introduction to Helsinki. Well, great. Thanks for the advice. Yeah, have a good time. Thanks. Okay, take care. It's Open Phones right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we hear about your travel plans. Our number is 877-333-RICK. Rhonda is calling in from Shawnee in Oklahoma. Rhonda, thanks for your call. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, we are going to Amsterdam in the spring, and I'm really excited about going to Kuchenhof. And I was wondering if you have any tips about certain days or times better than others or any other tips about it? Yeah, Kuchenhof is the ultimate flower show. And uh, I think it's the greatest bulb flower garden on earth. And it's open for two months every spring, and it's a side trip from Amsterdam. I think it's something like 7 million flowers are on display there and uh, all just showing off what they can grow in the Netherlands. I'm not that into gardening and flowers, but I'll tell you, even for me, it was one of the highlights of my trip. So you're lucky you're going there when Kuchenhof is open. We specifically planned it that way, yes. Yeah. Because so <laughs> I am I'm very excited about it. I, I think if you're, if you're going to the Netherlands, it's usually late March until mid-May. You can get there by public transportation from Amsterdam quite easily. Take you probably an hour and a half to get there from Amsterdam or an hour from, from Harlem. And, uh, yeah, we're staying in Harlem. Yeah, so uh, one thing fun about Kuchenhof is it's more than just flowers. It's Dutch traditional culture. You've got a beautiful windmill you can climb up. You've got uh, little tiny museums and videos and, and all sorts of traditional food. It's a little bit clichetic kind of things, but still, it's just your one-stop uh, opportunity to really enjoy <laughs> a lot of flowers and a lot of wooden shoes and a lot of windmills when you're in Holland. Uh, <laughs> another highlight, if you're really into flowers, is the uh, Alsmere Flower Auction, just near the airport outside of Amsterdam. Do you know about that? Yes, I've read about it. I don't think we're going to have time to do that, but yeah, that takes, we might try to. That takes a little more doing, but if you want to see the industrial end of the flower industry, this is an mm-hmm. incredible thing. You get The earlier, the better. They start really, really early, and it's some, by some measures, it's the biggest commercial building on Earth. And it's filled, you know, not with airplanes, but it's filled with flowers. And the Dutch are so proud of the fact that you can cut the flower one day, and it can be in flower shops anywhere in Europe <laughs> the next day. Right. Just to stand on the railing and, and watch all that flower industry... And to look at the auction house where these experts are buying their flowers in a, in a frenzy, that's quite a cool experience. So, and Dutch to, le- and to learn where, this, where the term Dutch auction comes from, that was interesting. I didn't know that that's where that came from. That's right. It's some way to speed things up because with flowers you can't, right. you can't dilly-dally. So they just go from, they don't, they don't let the price go from bottom up. They start the price way beyond what anybody will bid and they bring it down and the first person who's willing to say, I'll take it at that price gets it. So it's a, a much quicker auction. And to watch those yeah, guys Yeah, that's really that. interesting. <laughs> it's quite something. All right. <laughs> hey, well, have fun. And, and you're, you're lucky you're going to the Netherlands on that beautiful time of year in the spring to enjoy the flowers. Yes, thank you. Bye now. 
Erica is calling in from Olympia in Washington State. Hi. Well, I found out that my cousin is getting married and having a destination wedding in Italy. Mm. And I thought that if uh, I was going over anyway, that I would take advantage and try to do maybe a solo trip before or after. You might be wise to do your traveling before the wedding because then you'd be over jet lag and you'd be 100% when the wedding party gathers. Well, that would be smart also so I don't look jet lagged in the pictures. <laughs> oh, you don't want to do that. <laughs> and you'll have a nice Italian tan, so that's yeah. good. Yeah, well, they, she's going to Florence is the area that they're thinking of, but I didn't know with it being June what would be a good destination for a solo female traveler. Well, first of all, near Florence is Pisa, and Pisa has the an airport where the discount airlines like to use. So that would be your Ryanair flights would probably be coming in and out of Pisa. And that's just an hour or an hour and a half away from Florence. So that's quite a, a handy connection. Of course, you could fly anywhere from Pisa or Florence in an hour in Europe almost. But June is it's getting hot. So uh, if you're concerned about the heat, you might go north. But I think Italy in June is a wonderful time to be there. And uh, you got to remember, Italy is very, very well organized from a transportation infrastructure point of view. It's about the size of California. Point is, you can get around. In a, in a one-hour flight, you can get down to Sicily. In a three-hour train ride, you can get down to Rome or over to Venice. You could zip up to Switzerland. You could go over to the French Riviera. You could zip on over into Croatia if you wanted to. Plenty of side trips. So really, it is up to you. Where have you not been that you want to go? Amsterdam uh -huh. is definitely one. Yeah. You mentioned Barcelona, but I am a little concerned with the heat. Well, you know, if you, if you wanted to, you could fly into Amsterdam. You could fly from Amsterdam to Barcelona, and you could fly from Barcelona to Pisa. Oh. I mean, Amsterdam is great, and from Amsterdam you can take side trips. The amazing thing about Amsterdam is very comfortable from a, a woman-alone point of view and very easy from a side-tripping point of view. I mean, everything is within half an hour by train, so you could read up on the Netherlands. I was just there, and we went on a little canoe tour. There's actually a, a woman who does small canoe tours, and she takes four or five people every day for four hours, and you ride the bus out of town, she loads you up onto these canoes, and you paddle through the villages. It's called Waterland, and you see the little windmills working, and you see the duck nests, and you get to uh, paddle through houseboat communities, and it is so idyllic, and it is so beautiful. And that's just, you know, it's a half-hour bus ride out of, out of Amsterdam. So you have a world of side-tripping opportunities from Amsterdam. And, of course, Amsterdam is just one of the great happening places anywhere in Europe. Uh, flying into Barcelona, if you haven't been there, it's the hot, and I'm not talking hot temperature-wise, I'm talking trendy kind of, everybody loves Barcelona these days. You have to be on the ball in Barcelona because it does have more of an aggressive edge after dark. So there's people out, con artists out, hustlers and so on. But nobody's going to mug you. You've just got to not be vulnerable and, and naive and then stay in well-populated streets. But I really think if you're thinking about Barcelona, it is definitely one of the happening places in Europe. But do get to Italy a, a little bit before the wedding because from Florence, just an hour away is Siena, for instance. Siena is one of the most romantic places you could ever go, and it would be, it would just be a delight to sort of settle into Italy before you join um, the excitement of the wedding party in Florence. That that sounds great. Thanks, Thank Erica. Thank you so much. Happy travels and enjoy the wedding. You too. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to our colleagues at the BBC's Wogan House Studios and the Artist Partnership in London and at Vision Video and American Public Television for their help this week. You can find program extras, web links to our guests, and search our show archives. It's all at ricksteves.com radio.
Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel, and his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.